Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm Anne McElvoy, here from The Economist. It's Monday night on Indivisible. So Kai and I are here to talk with you about the global context of the first hundred days of the Trump administration. And tonight, it's all about health care. For the past six years, Republicans have been saying Obamacare is a disaster and that they'll fix it if given the chance. So we now have their blueprint, the American Health Care Act. The bill's got two big ideas. One is familiar, get rid of the mandate to have insurance. Here's Paul Ryan describing that yesterday on Face the Nation. People are going to do what they want to do with their lives because we believe in individual freedom in this country. So the question is, are we providing a system where people have access to health insurance if they choose to do so? And the answer is yes. But are we going to have some nice-looking spreadsheet that says we, the government of the, American, of the United States, are going to make people buy something and therefore they're all going to buy it? No. That's so, the fatal conceit of Obamacare in the first place. So it's not our job to make people do something that they don't want to do. It is our job to have a system where people can get universal access to affordable coverage if they choose to do so or not. That's what we're going to be accomplishing. Of course, what we're actually debating is that last part about universal access to affordable coverage for those of us who do, in fact, want to have it. Obamacare achieves that through a complicated formula of tax credits and grants that are meant to adjust to your particular economic situation. Excuse me, economic situation. The House GOP plan would drastically simplify things. Everybody gets the same tax credit. It'll vary a bit by age, but not by income and not by where you live. So that's one big idea. No mandate and everybody gets the same help regardless of whether you're, how much you make or where you live. The second big idea is to substantially reduce the federal government's contribution to Medicaid. Whereas Obamacare expanded Medicaid significantly, the GOP plan would give states a set hunk of money and then let them figure out on their own how to cover people, how many people to cover, what to do with it. The Congressional, bu- excuse me, the Congressional Budget Office said today that the number of uninsured will grow by 24 million people by 2026 and largely as a result of that shrinkage in Medicare. So we're going to try to talk about all of this tonight, and we want healthcare providers in particular to call in and tell us about your experiences with, with Obamacare so far. Doctors, nurses, hospital administrators, anybody engaged in the actual provision of health care to folks, how have things changed for you under Obamacare, and what do you want to see from Congress whenever it passes? 845-745-TALK. That's 84, I'm sorry, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Remember, we are live all around the country, including Washington, D.C., where all of our members of Congress are debating this right now, theoretically. Uh, so you might be able to talk to them directly. Healthcare providers, tell them what you need in order to do your job well. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet using the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Meanwhile, this is a topic both Anne and I have spent a good part of our own careers covering. And Anne, since you've had the benefit of looking at this in comparison to other wealthy nations, 
Let me ask you about something Paul Ryan said when talking about the plan in his now Twitter-famous PowerPoint presentation last week. Listen to this part. The whole idea of Obamacare is the people on the blue side pay for the people on the red side. The people who are healthy pay for the people who are sick. It's not working, and that's why it's in a death spiral. So honestly, he's perfectly illustrated the American political problem. Any healthcare system that goes beyond individual patients in isolated economic relationships with their doctors will ultimately mean that healthy, well-off people are going to subsidize sick, poor people in some fashion, which is just, it has not been an un- a popular idea on any side of the equation, honestly. Nobody wants to feel like a burden, and well-off people don't want to be put upon. So how, in your political conversation in European systems, how have they got around this sort of hard nut to crack? Well, Kai, it's a very good question. There isn't a one-size-fits-all in the European model. And there are tensions and cost stresses everywhere in the developed world when it comes to healthcare systems. But the US model is, I think, in a very different category here. And it does need more fundamental address. So here are a couple of ways that you could go. You could go down the French or German model with employers paying the bulk of insurance. The state then provides a kind of safety net. It's a public-private mix. So what are the advantages to that? Well, insurance have to try to keep costs down for premiums. The disadvantage is, guess what, a lot of paperwork with the insurers and they siphon off quite a lot of the money spent on healthcare. So you could go the British route, nothing wrong with being a Brit, I think, but you could go our way and that would have been the NHS, a bit of a national icon in Britain, single payer system, money raised through tax, free at the point of delivery, Sounds great, doesn't it? And it gives very good overall coverage. But the costs are rising and little Britons are going to be older Britons and living longer and costing more on the way. And the cost pressures and the patchiness of the system is that it's very good in some places, quite bad in others. But it does mean you get treated free when things are serious. So what interests me, looking at the American situation with the European systems a bit in my backpack from my reporting is that there seems to be a bit of a missing link in the American model. The huge discrepancies in healthcare and the insurance system kind of mirroring each other very awkwardly. And what's interesting is why the system has ended up this way. It feels like a problem I've been covering for so many years. It's always shelved. It's never quite resolved. Well, and it's it's helpful to remember that we've only arrived at a healthcare safety net in the first place relatively recently in the United States. It kind of grew out of the civil rights movement as people were moving out of fighting for social integration and into fighting for economic uh, integration. And most of the so-called entitlement programs today, certainly Medicaid and Medicare began in that era, as liberals began to agree that we should be helping people move out of the poverty that segregation created. But that wasn't a consensus idea then, and it's not a consensus idea now, honestly. And so we're 50-plus years on, and that uh, moment has passed, and the debate has taken a lot of twists and turns. But we have not yet agreed on the cause of poverty, let alone the response to it. And healthcare is caught up in that disagreement. And I'd argue, Kai, it's even more fundamental. It's about this whole principle of whether you want a universal healthcare system. So The Economist, we like to look forward, but sometimes we look back as well. And and one story I would just tell briefly is Thomas Carlyle, a great Scottish 19th century thinker in the liberal tradition, ended up being quite fashionable in progressive circles in America in the 1830s as well. And Thomas Carlyle was a great storyteller, and he tells a tale of a woman who dies of scarlet fever in the street in Scotland. Nobody stops to assist her, but she's already infected others, and more and more people die of the disease. 
And Carlyle is really using it as a metaphor of what happens to a society when it doesn't see health as a common endeavour. Remember, he's doing this in 1830 and we're still having that argument right here in 2017 here in the US. So the question I would like to put tonight to to us all and to callers as well for their perspective is what would the answer to Carlyle's challenge look like to America this year? All right, so listeners, that's our, our mandate tonight. We want to hear calls from a couple of specific groups. Uh, I already said we want to hear from healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, therapists, anybody who provides care and has had their practice impacted by Obamacare or Medicaid's expansion. What was your experience? And importantly, what do you want Congress to do to change it? Or should it be changed at all? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. The second group of people we also want to talk to, because a big question here is access to care for actually sick people. So if you're enrolled in Obamacare or Medicaid and you've had a significant health problem, call us up and tell us how the system worked for you. What was good? What would you change? Again And again, remember, we're on all over the country, including Washington, D.C. Perhaps your congressperson is listening. Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And tweet using the hashtag IndivisibleRadio. And joining us as your calls are coming in is Elizabeth Benjamin. She's Vice President of Health Initiatives at the Community Service Society of New York. Hello, Elizabeth. Good evening. And she's a health policy expert and going to take us through some of the real-life effects of changing Obamacare in the way Republicans have proposed. So let me start with that question that Paul Ryan put very pointedly, namely people should choose whether they get access to coverage and to what degree. And I think it would be fair to say, Elizabeth, that the compulsory element did irk a lot of people when it came to Obamacare. And Republicans are now saying there might be a a way to get round that more choice of providers. CBO report, they would say, points to lower premiums. They got a point. Not really. Um, next year, premiums will, if the if this act would become law, uh, will go up by fifteen to twenty percent. And it depends really after that. It really depends on who you are as to whether your premiums will go up or down. If you're an older person in your fifties or sixties, you're going to see stratospheric premium increases you know, on a ratio of five to one compared to a young person. And the premium tax credits that they're replacing the other mm. Obamacare of premium tax credits are not going to be enough for older people. The thing that it also – so premiums will go up. The other piece that's very pernicious is that there will be – the Medicaid cuts is so profound – will wipe out health insurance for so many people, will cause incredible state budget deficits. Um, You know, that's another whole kettle of fish that we have to discuss as well. And what do you see then here is the balance? What is the intention of this repeal? Is it to get rid of Obamacare and the bits of uh, Obamacare that were deemed onerous for various reasons? Or is it actually a deeper attack on Medicaid? What do you think is driving this? I mean, I think it's really a transfer of wealth from low-income people 
to upper income people. Under the Affordable Care Act, people, you know, the actual financial assistance that was provided to people to buy health insurance stopped at $40,000 a year, around $40,000 for a single person a year, $96,000 for a family of four. Under the new premium, as you said, Kai, under the new system, it'll be a flat amount of money. It's only related to your age, and it doesn't actually vary that much by age because it's only 2000 to $4,000. Under the old system, if you were lower income, you could get a lot, you can get a lot more money. And so under the Affordable Care Act, many, many more people will get health insurance through the marketplace. And then, of course, there's the whole Medicaid piece that we must come back to. Because, we, yeah. And we will come back to Medicaid in some detail. But let's, let's go ahead and start with some callers here. Uh, we have Laura from Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, who I believe is a pediatrician. Hello, Laura. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? We are very well. What's uh, been your experience, Laura? Um, I've been a pediatrician since the early 1990s, so I uh, remember practicing medicine uh, before we had Obamacare. And um, I saw a lot of people who were uninsured who came to care late because they didn't have insurance and their children got much sicker than they would have if they had insurance. I also saw a lot of families go bankrupt because of a single illness in a child. Um, and what I saw once Obamacare was um, enacted was I saw a lot less uninsured people. And a lot of people who were coming in for primary care had illnesses that were treated much better because we did a lot more preventative care. And we had a lot of... Um, I really never did not see people who were coming in late to get care because they didn't have insurance. And a lot of people would tell me that it was the first time that their family had had insurance. So my big fear, or I shouldn't call it a fear, but what I would really want from my representatives in, in Washington is I would want to try and increase that coverage. I would want more people to be insured. We are an incredibly wealthy country. We should have nobody that does not have insurance. I mean, it is it's unfathomable to me that you can have people who don't have insurance in this country and are afraid to come get care because it will economically bankrupt them. Laura, can I ask you a question? You're a pediatrician. Uh, one of the stats that has been striking to me about Obamacare was that it, it, in the course of Obamacare, the racial disparity in children's access to health, to, to insurance, all but zeroed out, um, which is just a striking thing statistically. I wonder, as a, a pediatrician, did you see that? Was I don't know if you're what kind of practice you have. If you're yeah. in a place where you have a diverse racial group, so or... I, yeah, absolutely. So I um, in in the 1990s, I, I was working in Philadelphia, and so I actually was there when we had an enormous outbreak of measles, and that was really because we had a 60 percent vaccination rate in all the kids in Philadelphia, and that was just purely because of lack of access. And I, I really think that, you know, that is, that is something that could happen again if we really decrease access again. And so, and I really have seen now, you know, we all kids, you know, through partly through CHIP, um, which was implemented during um, the Clinton's um, time, but also through the Affordable Care Act, I just feel as though, um, kids are covered now and um, we're just doing so much more preventative care and well child care and picking up things before they cause more problems and I think that's sort of the ironic thing is if we have so many less people covered 
healthcare becomes so much more expensive because most illnesses, if you catch them earlier, it's cheaper to treat them. And if you do a lot of preventative care, then they're not going to the hospital, they're not being admitted, they're not going to the intensive care unit. We're managing them as outpatients. Thank you for that, Laura. Uh, Elizabeth, I saw you nodding a lot as Laura was talking. I mean, one of the pernicious things about the Republican plan is that what they're doing is they're encouraging people to buy. They're doing exactly what people don't want. People want to fix the Affordable Care Act by making fewer deductibles, lower deductibles, less cost sharing. What they're doing is incentivizing people to buy high deductible plans with more cost sharing. Before the Affordable Care Act, 64% of all American bankruptcies were related to medical costs in the system. So what the Affordable Care Act did is basically made medical bankruptcy a thing that was relatively unknown at this point. Um, The other thing that she said that was so important is that 41% of the enrollment on Medicaid is children. So between Medicaid and Child Health, the state's children's health insurance program, that is an incredible safety net for children. And, you know, the vast majority of U.S. kids now have health insurance. And that's something we should be proud of as a nation instead of trying to cut them off. But Elizabeth, can I just be a bit provocative and say if it was as obvious as all all that, then we wouldn't have ended up here. So it does seem that there are a lot of people who feel... You know, that, that, that this isn't working for them, that the Obamacare uh, plan wasn't going to work for them, or they're at least prepared to, to take this seriously. Now, the question I come back to is my old friend Thomas Carlyle there, you know, from the 19th century. The universal principle, which is so obvious to you and to Laura, the paediatrician, and she put it very eloquently, what she saw is not clearly shared by an absolutely clear majority of Americans. So what is going wrong and why do so many other countries believe in a universal healthcare system and Americans don't? Um, that is a very good question. I mean, I think it's because America chose to really build off of a job-based insurance system, um, and there was a lot of opposition back in the early days from the American Medical Association. I would submit it wasn't their finest hour when they were very much against having health a universal health insurance program. Um, you know, we've just been trying it every 50 years. We tried it around the Great Depression. We tried it again and got partway in 1965 with the enactment of Medicare and Medicaid, which made uninsurance basically unknown for most elder, you know, senior people um, age-wise, um, and really made a big effort in providing coverage for children, people with disabilities, and seniors who were low-income through the Medicaid program. And now, lo and behold, 50 years later, we actually are trying to do something for working, low-income people. And that was the Affordable Care Act. And you know what? It worked. I mean, health insurance, uninsurance rates went down from 18% of the population to 11% of population. Um, you know, health care costs were controlled. Um, we, haven't, we haven't seen so little in terms of health medical inflation in years. So um, it's really, it's sort of, I think the reason why they don't like it is because of the taxes. We're going to have to take a break here. You're listening to Indivisible. We're talking to Elizabeth Benjamin at the Community Service Society of New York, and we're taking your calls. The number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. We have to take a short break. Stay with us.
You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. We're here with Elizabeth Benjamin from the Community Service Society of New York, talking about the Republican plan to replace Obamacare. And we are taking your calls, and we're going to go straight back to the phones. I want to talk to Steve in Chicago. Steve, welcome. You're on the air. Hello. How you doing, Steve? Good. Thanks for taking my call. What's been your experience? So I'm an ER doctor in Chicago, and um, my experience since the Affordable Care Act was passed, we found our ability to um, to get our folks insured went from about 25% pre-Affordable Care Act. Now we're over 60% roughly. Um, we saw a wide expansion of uh, family practice clinics and primary care provider appointments um, open up, and um, it just allowed us to do our work much better. We were able to get people into aftercare, get them their own doctor. In the ER, you know, we'll see anyone 24-7. We're more than happy to do that. Um, but for folks that are coming to us because they don't have a primary doctor, um, you know, it's not optimal. It's, you know, we, we can do med refills. We can take care of the immediate problem, but we're not doing a great job for their long-term care. So, you know, what I would like to see is that nationally, that we preserve all of the ground that we made with our folks who had no insurance. And um, again, this is mostly through the Medicaid expansion. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for that comment. The the ER question um, is has been central to this uh, from the beginning, Elizabeth. Help us understand the role the ER plays in individual patients' lives. <laughs> well, I mean, I think what happens is if you don't have health insurance, and you wait until you get very sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why high deductible plans are also bad, because you wait till you get very sick, and then you go to the emergency room. The problem that the wonderful doctor, the emergency room doctor was just describing is that we had lots of people who had no health insurance. We call that uncompensated care in our hospitals. Well, who was paying for all that uncompensated care? Guess what? We were the people that have job-based coverage because the hospitals would cost shift and defray the costs of all that uncompensated care on us. And it's interesting in the Congressional Budget Office scoring, they note that that will be a problem going forward. There so, will be more uncompensated care. So the Congressional, we should say the Congressional Budget Office uh, to, today, they released their score of the House Republican bill. Uh, their score, as they put it, is is how they what they say about how much it's going to cost, what it's going to do to the United States budget, really. Uh, and in the, in the course of that, they said the number of uninsured people will increase by 14 million as of 2018. So that's right away as One a year. consequence of the people who will come out of the individual mandate, uh, and then to 24 million down the road by 2026. And that's because of the Medicaid, uh, of, 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 of rolling back of Medicaid. I mean, a huge part of it's rolling back of Medicaid, but it's also in rolling back the, um, the tax, the, the, the advanced 
taxable credits, you know, premium tax credits, as opposed to and substituting them with these sort of less effective premium tax credits. So you could say, Elizabeth, that's a slightly technocratic description of it. So I get to put the philosophy hat on t- tonight on this show. And, and I'm really wondering about who is prepared to pay for what on behalf of whom? That seems to be like the broader question. If you take a, a longer lens view on this argument, this renewed argument about healthcare uh, in the United States, we had an economist poll today. We ran a quick uh, straw poll on, on Twitter. And it was interesting that the, the salience, obviously, is a very busy time in American politics, a very controversial time. And yet healthcare still emerged by a decent nose ahead, really, wasn't it, Kai, of the other, the, the other subjects that are around at the, at the moment. So there is that sense of, like, a bigger question is being asked. Yeah, I think it really is. I mean, look, under this bill, the top 400 families will get $7 million tax relief each year, according to Harvard School of Public Health. I mean, that's just extraordinary. So how are they, what are they doing here? They're basically saying that lower income people, older people have to pay much, much more. And in exchange, what they're going to do is give tax relief to higher income people who may not have job-based coverage. And then they're going to repeal all the Affordable Care Act taxes on high net worth individuals. So they will not be paying as much on tax on their investment income. They'll, um, you know, ensure insurance company executives will only be able will have an unlimited amount of workplace deductions as opposed to a cap of 500,000 it's these kinds of taxes that are being repealed and that's part of the philosophy here going back to your earlier point there's a philosophy that wealthy people don't own a thing owe a thing to lower income elderly and disabled people I'm going to bring in Maureen from Bristol, Connecticut, who I think has a different view uh, on how and how the Obamacare how Obamacare has worked. Maureen, welcome. You're on the air. Yeah, I, initially when I uh, spoke to you, I brought up how Obama did nothing wrong. He put in these parameters where it, we were to monitor patients more closely so they didn't get readmitted to the hospital. I I'm sorry, Maureen. You're, you're a nurse, correct? Correct. When you say we were to monitor people. Yeah, um, I work in long-term care. So there were these very specific parameters that we had to keep um, control over and monitor every every patient that came out of the hospital. And what happened is if they got readmitted to the hospital, the hospital got fined. If they, admit, if they let the patient out too soon, then the hospital got fined. If the long-term care facility, that we were punished. The facilities were punished mon- monetarily for not for what was considered they're not doing their job. So these in, these insurance companies continued to make profits off the backs of slave labor. Nurses and doctors are getting out of the whole entire business because they're turning us into slaves. And the thing is, healthcare should never have been a business to begin with. This whole thing about the United States being against universal health care is all propaganda that Elizabeth Benjamin is talking about. We have always wanted universal health care. Who wouldn't want universal health care? But what happens is 
because there's so much propaganda to make us not want it. Socialized medicine, oh, it's not as good. Oh, you have to wait and all this stuff. So they make Americans not vote on it. They put billions of dollars into making us not demand this. The pharmaceutical companies, just their commercials alone on the television, would pay for all of us to have universal health care. They are just ripping us off. Huge, huge propaganda to make us not have it. And we deserve it. We are the hardest working people in the country. We work 40, 60, 80 80 hours a week just to pay our our rent, our mortgage, to have a house. So, Maureen, I'm going to stop you there. Uh, But uh, I, I... As Bill Clinton would have said, I feel your pain uh, on on being the hardest working folks. And and Elizabeth, I want to ask you about like the, there is an element though where 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 she began is that not everything was roses for, for is a roses for Obamacare, and in particular for hospitals, uh, there's been a, it, it put a crunch on on, on hospitals economically. Um, and 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 I've heard. I've heard other people, other hospital staff, nurses like Maureen, complain about being overworked, um, about the uh, about the mandates that were added to their work in the hospital without additional funding. Can can you talk about that at all? Or do you, uh, wh- well, I mean, I can. I mean, I think it's sort of an interesting dilemma. I mean, what they are trying to do is, you know, I mean, there is this notion that there that people were being discharged and there were preventable, you know, readmissions. And I think what the, you know, some states and if in fact, I think her state is one of the states that had a special innovation grant. And a lot of states were saying, OK, we're going to actually reduce our um, reimbursement rates if you have an adverse readmission like that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's real health policies because too many people were being readmitted that shouldn't and being discharged too early and readmitted inappropriately. So there's lots of like innovation policy levers that, you know, the last administration was trying to do. But I don't think we should confuse it with the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And if the American Hospital Association gave that one of the most shrill and most impassioned defenses about the Affordable Care Act last week. I mean, all the health care providers essentially came out and said, Congressman Ryan's bill is bad. So American Hospital Association led the way. The Nurses Association was right there. All the doctors groups, for the most part, all right there. The American Medical Association, as I said, not usually a, a fan of insurance, said this is horrible. We shouldn't do it. So, but let, let me... We have a, a question from some, or a comment from somebody on Twitter, Matt on Twitter, that I, I think is important to get to here, asking, "What about the people who still cannot afford health care and then get penalized for it?" There have been an enormous number of complaints from folks. Half I talked to several people, even in the newsroom today, who who freelancers here who work here who have Obamacare plans and are like, "Man, this thing it's too expensive, and the and the coverage is crappy." <laughs> and what? What about that fact? I mean, the, the people haven't been thrilled with the coverage. Well, they won't like what they're going to get because it's going to be a lot worse. I mean, honestly, what they're going to be getting will have more deductibles, more co-pays. It's going to be a race to the bottom. When they say affordable and choice, they mean, yeah, you can get maybe get a policy instead of paying four or $500 for a policy. That's before tax credits. You can get a policy maybe for two or $300, but you'll have a $6,500 deductible, a $10,000 deductible, or maybe you only have hospital coverage. And you think you have coverage, but you don't have pharmacy. But Elizabeth, this is one of the things that has frustrated me, at least throughout this debate, uh, for 
now for six years, uh, is that no one really has been put a lot of energy into what does actually need to be fixed about Obamacare. I hear very little from Democrats about until now about what actually needs to be fixed. The so, bill was not perfect. So setting the Republican plan aside, uh-huh. what what would a what should Congress be doing to improve the situation? For actually, like there that? is something in the. Republican plan that could be used to improve the Affordable Care Act. Under the Affordable Care Act, they set up these reinsurance mechanisms. And basically, it's kind of a technical thing, so I'll try to make it super easy. But basically, for insurance, it base, if a, one carrier got a really, really group of sick people and another carrier got healthier people, they would have the sick carrier pay the healthy people. That was one form. But they also had other forms where there was a pool of money that reduced the impact of very sick people. The Ryan plan actually talks about such a pool. It won't go into effect until 2020, which is why the premiums are going to go out crazy for the next two years. But that kind of reinsurance or risk adjustment mechanisms or risk corridors, that's what we should be really looking at because that will bring down prices for everyone. And so um, that was in the Affordable Care Act. But as Mark Rubio crowed on the front page of The Times, he basically didn't fund it. And so they were only paying 13 cents on the dollar for all of these risk order claims. And that was a way of, you know, killing the beast or starving the beast, as they refer to it. What, but what about the narrow networks thing? You know, what, what about the fact that, you know, uh, uh, setting aside the, the premiums, which is one complaint, but right. also that the, 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 the coverage itself has been bad. And, and this is something Well, that's that, not true. I mean, I, I can't think you can just say uh, coverage has been bad. Right. Many people have gotten extraordinary care. Lives have been saved. So I don't think we should be fair inaccurate. Enough. Fair, fair enough. I mean, fair enough. Sorry. But, 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 <laughs> but people, people have people complained have about experience. narrow networks. People have complained about not necessarily having auto out-of-network coverage. And I agree with those complaints. And we champion consumers on trying to broaden networks, make sure network and, you know is more adequate. But what's the first thing they did in their CMS regulations under Donald Trump is they said, oh, we're we're going to liberalize so you can have even less network analysis. So that's not what the Republicans are promising here. In fact, they're saying they'll, they're guaranteeing even more narrow networks than what we have now. But, you know, Elizabeth, this is a, a government that's coming with a president who's unashamedly populist. He does what he thinks is going to get an echo and he has a very strong base. And it is not just the high net worthers who are saying oh, they have uh, an interest, perhaps, in the repeal of Obamacare. We have uh, employers, medium-sized employers, are saying it's, it's, it's hit them and that they've actually, a lot of them, have just basically paid people to go away and not do it, really. So it does seem that there's quite a lot of people, also potential Trump voters or Trump voters in, at this last election who don't like it much either. And I think that really does bring us back to the quandary. If you want to get a more acceptable definition of universal health care, it can't just appeal to people who double down on outrage already. It has to somehow appeal to people who need to be persuaded. So go on, persuade them for me. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is I don't have to. I mean, now for the first time ever, Affordable Care Act is more popular than it's ever been before. More people want the Affordable Care Act. And what do they want to do? They want to make it more affordable. And that's the exact reverse of what's being on offer. Well, it so. may also be that more people understand it for the first time ever. The number of yeah, people I've true. interviewed. It's complicated. I mean, look, it's complicated for a reason. We built off many people like their job-based coverage. Many people were in Medicare. 
for older people, Medicaid for you know people with disabilities, lots of kids, um, and and poor um, poor you know poorer people. And we and then we had the veteran system. So we had three sort of quasi government public systems that were operating pretty well. And then we had the job based system. And then we had this crisis in the individual market where we had a lot a lot of fifty seven what fifty million uninsured people. And we had to do something about them as a humane society. And that's what the Affordable Care Act tried to do. But it was trying to build off of the existing system because that's what people wanted us to do. And that's a complicated process. Uh, Let's go to Kim in Clarksville, Tennessee. Kim, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hey, um, I'm both a health care provider, but this is a little bit more about my son uh, as a parent. Um, He turned 27 in October. He has a history of, oh, excuse me, 26. He uh, came off the uh, Our Health Care Insurance um, he has epilepsy and migraines and um, is on chronic medication to prevent those conditions. Um, he functions. He's a, a student. He was working a part-time job, making about $400 a month. Uh, but we were one of the states that did not buy into Medicaid expansion. So, therefore, when we looked into healthypeople.gov, it was going to be $300 a month, and he only made 400 and there was no way we can cover the cost of his medicine and an additional $300 and our own expenses um, and, and, and get him taken care of. We're fortunate that he does have access to a safety net clinic, uh, but there are others um, who in our state there, again, because it's stripped. Uh, when uh, medic- when uh, the Affordable Care Act started, uh, our state stripped um, those who were undocumented aliens and others uh, from being seen in public health clinics, they don't have that right and they don't have that access. Um, so it's our, our, our as a state, I'm uh, I think we become very inhumane Kim, can uh, because I... I was a nurse practitioner in a clinic and we did care with anyone, uh, regardless of their status, their documented status, and we gave good care. But I also had to, at times to tell people essentially say. I'm sorry, I can do nothing more, um, and essentially give them a death sentence. Kim, can I ask you about when you were seeking care for your son? You kind of, you, you know, you tell the story of going th- of the things that he couldn't get, and then you found the the, the, the I was clinic. fortunate because I know resources. Mm. <laughs> I'm in public health, so <laughs> I'm really good at finding resources. But the majority of clients of patients don't have the knowledge, the ability, the time to navigate the already complex healthcare system. And I'm, I'm concerned with the Republican plan because I feel like it's going to add a whole other level of complexity, um, and people are already struggling. And it's not that they don't care, and it's not that they don't want health care, um, as it's been portrayed, that they can, that they can choose it, um, whether they want it or not. Um, personally, um, I feel strongly, um, I lived in Australia growing up, so I lived with socialized medicine, <laughs> and um, it saved my brother's life. So um, I don't have anything about ha- against having a universal health care system. What I think would make sense would actually be to have a two-tiered system, which a lot of, uh, a lot of countries that have uh, uni- universalized health care have, where people can buy additional coverage, but there's a basic set of services that's provided to everyone. Thanks, Elizabeth. I'm going to have to let you go. Listeners, we're, we'd love to hear more calls like hers. We want to hear if you've had an experience yourself or in your family uh, of dealing with Obamacare with sickness. Call us, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. We're going to take a short break, and we will be back. You're listening to Indivisible Radio. Thank you. 
This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. We are here talking with Elizabeth Benjamin from the Community Service Society of New York and taking your calls about your experiences with Obamacare. Uh, If you are a practitioner of some sort, doctors, nurses, therapists, we'd like to hear from you. Or if you are a you or someone in your family uh, have had a healthcare experience under Obamacare, we'd like to hear from you as well. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Uh, Elizabeth, but I want to first play a clip for you uh, from the, uh, the the debate in the House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing last week, uh, where uh, two Congress members are discussing the the, the American Health Care Act. What mandate in the Obamacare bill does he take issue with? Certainly not with pre-existing conditions or caps on benefits or letting your child stay on the policy to twenty six. So I'm, I'm curious, what is it we're mandating? Would the gentleman you, yield? Yeah, sure. What about men having to purchase prenatal care? Okay. I'm just, well, is that not correct? Reclaiming my time. And should they? Reclaiming my time. Whoa, 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 There's no whoa, such whoa. thing as a la Regular carte. order. Regular. There's no such thing as a la carte insurance, John. So that was Representative John Shimkus of Illinois asking Representative Mike Doyle, Doyle about a la carte insurance, as Doyle put it. Uh, now, you know, this is healthcare, both prenatal care and healthcare for women in general come up. Obviously, here they were talking about uh, just the, the, the mandate question, but it seems to have gotten caught up also in a piece of the GOP plan that would prevent any subsidy being able to u- being used for a plan that would include coverage for abortion. So, again, these are these are two separate issues: the ma- the individual mandates in the Obama- in Obamacare, but also these questions about women's health and what does and does not get covered that seem to get caught up in that discussion. And and I and I want to ask you, Elizabeth, about that about both things. Well, I mean, what we what we're talking about when we talk about the individual mandate is we talk about if you decide to go without coverage, you have a small tax penalty. It can be up to you know six hundred and ninety five dollars a year for an individual, which is obviously much less cheap, much less more expensive, much less expensive than actually buying coverage. So it's not a very significant mandate. Um, the other mandates that they are talking about is the mandate to have essential health benefits, which in fact they are not trying to get rid of here. One of the 10 essential health benefits is maternity coverage, as one of the congressmen were, were speaking about. I find it ironic that it's two congressmen talking about <laughs> it. No one ever talks about why we have to pay for pr- prostate cancer coverage. I mean, no one ever talks about why we have you know Viagra in most, you know, drug benefits. So it's it's very unusual to me that we as a culture tolerate calling out women's health as if it's somehow, you know, shouldn't be paid for, whereas all men's health should be. Well, it, it and I think to, that's very problematic. Well, and it seems to me because it's a root, it root, it's rooted in the the cult, in the abortion, abortion wars. Well, and, and it's rooted in I would say, you know, just flat out sexism, well, which it, is also rooted in our culture. <laughs> so, um, so and, but but I, 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 that that element of the bill though that is going to that that would say that if a plan has uh has coverage of abortion in it, no you cannot use a subsidy to purchase it. What how will that impact what is the broad impact of that? 
Um, well, we don't really know yet. Um, there was certainly no discussion of the scoring, and there's not been a ton of analysis. I mean, I think it's just another way to limit women's reproductive choice. Another thing that they did is they're going to um, defund Planned Parenthood. You know, $353 billion, million for Planned Parenthood is going to be stripped away. Um, and in exchange, they're going to give, you know, um, more money to healthcare centers, but they're going to do it in a way that won't even be accessible in the first year because we're halfway through the year that they're supposedly giving more money to health centers. So those grants will never be able to get out in time. So I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors here. And a lot of it's like politics. So yeah, let's go to Ruth in Boston, who is an OBGYN. Ruth, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Thank you very much. I am pleased to be on, and I have really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, I've listened to it for several weeks, and um, thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, my points, which I wanted to say, and I was sort of pre- previewed, the things that I liked about Obamacare, which sort of slid under, was the fact that contraception was fully funded. And I have to say now that women are rushing to get their contraceptive IUDs because they don't know what's going to happen. So contraception has been funded. Women have had more access to health care so that when they register for prenatal care, they're being screened for disorders and for problems and to optimize their pregnancies. The other thing is there is no copay for smoking cessation so that that can help improve the health of pregnant women. And while we don't get a great health, you know, benefits for maternity leave, the Obamacare has given women access to good breast pumps for free. Our dollars are paying for this to help promote the health of women and children. So... That is the thing that I have enjoyed or have experienced in my practice. Ruth, if I could just, could I just pick up um, on on some of the points you made there? Because they're they're very interesting to to me looking, you know, looking into this system and and perhaps also to bring Elizabeth in on this is what guarantees do you think we have? I'm going to mix a metaphor here that we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, all those those kind of incremental changes and things that we know are just generally good in primary health care. And whether Ruth's talking about it here or I've been looking at developing healthcare systems, those are all kind of good things. They're on the pretty basic checklist before you get into more controversial areas, you know, obviously the abortion uh, very large among them. Do you think we'll be able to sort of save those small gains, if you like, from Obamacare? Well, I don't know. I mean, honestly, what they're saying is they're trying to force people into lower quality health care plans. I mean, that's the plan. And I think that's sort of phase two is they're going to go after essential health benefits, the, pre- the free preventive care. Um, they don't like these kinds of health insurance mandates that make the system work better for people. They don't. That's not what they're interested in having. Well, you say that they don't like it. Do you mean that they don't like it as a point of principle or just to the kind of uh, list that Ruth was coming up with there, that these are incidental things that fall by the wayside because the reform isn't thought through? 
No, I think they don't like it as a principle. I think they think that people should have a la carte health insurance and that they think that you should be able to have. I mean, they're talking very overtly about having very stripped down policies that will be very cheap and very appealing to, say, young, healthy people. And then the bigger problem is, is that there won't be adequate funding to buy health insurance if you're an older person. Ruth, is that the way it feels to you that you're seeing something being stripped down? Well, I actually have a a lot of other uh, concerns, and I'm sorry if I'm redirecting you, but I, you know, had this moment. I I am a dual citizen. I came from Canada, and they don't do direct advertising. And I agreed with a previous caller that we have spent so much money on like advertisement for Viagra and Cialis, and and it's crazy that we are spending all this money. And I have to talk to my older patients who have vaginal dryness, uh, urinary tract infections, and I have to tell them that their medication is going to be three or $400 a month. And I don't know who's making up the rules where what, you know, what applies for Viagra and, you know, what applies for women's health. But that is still a problem. And and, and so I think that we need a complete overhaul of the pharmaceuticals, which everyone is in bed with everybody. I don't know who's going to pay for the Viagra or to help women with vaginal dryness. But it is in this profession, it is very difficult. And uh, so I don't know. If you're saying what are the in- incremental benefits, I think they're going to be stripped away. Mm-hmm. I think that women are afraid their contraception is going to be take away, taken away. Right now, the United States has the lowest abortion rate that it has ha- had. And with you know stripping away of these access to contraceptive, to choice, you know, it's going to be a nightmare. Thank you, Ruth, for calling in with that. Uh, I want to bring in Patty from Manchester, New Hampshire, who is a mental health clinician. Hi, Patty. You're wel- welcome to Indivisible, and Hi. you're on the air. Hi. Um, I'd like to preface it by saying I grew up, my father was in the Air Force, so I had nothing to think about until I was 18. I joined the Navy. I had coverage until I got out of the Navy, and I'm a disabled vet, and so I, I'm under the Veterans Administration, and I, I have experienced wonderful things in the Veterans Administration medical, um, but I don't have to worry about health insurance, and, and I work in mental health centers, and I've worked in four different states, and um, with the introduction of the Affordable Care Act, um, I saw more and more people who who were able to get insurance, I think, in, in access to mental health treatment and addictions treatment, and even within um, some services like addictions, um, it's very difficult to get into those programs, there aren't a lot of programs to in New Hampshire for sure um, to get into. Um, both Maine and New Hampshire uh, that I worked in were mandated under consent decrees um, to provide mental health services, and really the hammer came down on them through the lawsuits. Um, and so I've seen a lot of changes with that. I work on a mobile crisis team right now, trying to divert people from the emergency room who could benefit by who need assistance outside of the hospital and could benefit by services and outpatient um, services. 
and addictions treatment, but um, can't manage to get the access to that. And so they end up in the emergency room and they end up in our inpatient units. And mo- not most, I guess, but a great percentage of them lying, right, saying I'm suicidal because that's a magic word, um, to get into inpatient units, which are expensive, um, but not very well, uh, and not, you know, they're not getting a lot of um, what payment from insurances mm-hmm. and such. Um, and they, and people are lying to get into treatment, you know, and, and they're not getting adequate treatment when they do that. Uh, I, I saw good things with the Affordable Care Act, and um, as an intern not long ago, I was seeing patients for free in Maine. The, the, their incomes, when I would sit there and I'd go through the Affordable Care Act with them, these are people who were working but not making $14,700 a year. I was, I was stunned at someone who doesn't work, worry about uh, getting treatment at any time in my life that that people were coming to me i i was there for nine months and and then they had nothing you know it's like i get everything you can in nine months because boy howdy you know you're you're not going to be able to get anything and looking at the plans and the large deductibles um my sister's plan she's a she gets through her job you know her deductible has skyrocketed um and and so you know i i think in New Hampshire, we don't pay income tax, and and you're not going to get elected if you if you suggest that um, that we do. But I think as a country, we need to decide: do we care or do we not care? You know, Thank- and if we don't care, just be honest about it. Thank and you for that, Patty. Thank you that for that, and that's 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 something what we've been talking about already. Elizabeth, you, you had something you wanted, wanted to say. I just wanted to about say the thing about Maine was it was one of the states that didn't expand Medicaid, and that's why her clients weren't getting coverage. But the thing that's really important about this um, Congressional Budget Office scoring is that they're saying three-quarters of the cut, $880 billion, will come off of Medicaid. And what? Uh, how are they – one of those cuts is they're not going to have Medicaid be required to have the essential health benefits. And that means no mental health, no opiates, you know, treatment, no substance abuse treatment. And that's going to continue to compound the crisis at the states um, on terms of state budgets around the kinds of services that she was talking about. So it's such an important caller. And and opiates were, of course, a huge part of the, the election with concern amongst many Trump voters about, uh, about precisely that. But I want to go back to something that Ruth mentioned – uh, and that we have Jamal on Twitter asks, as a pharmacist, I wonder why these plans don't do anything to curb the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, this has been another complaint about Obamacare is that the, that because of the the, the tiers of pricing for drugs, that a lot of drugs, particularly if you desperately need them, are still extremely expensive. What What about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the com- it's that controversy between brand drugs and generic drugs. Um, they often, you know, the plans often have are playing sort of games and having formularies. And we, as consumer protection activists, you know, spend a lot of time trying to help, you know, make sure that the formularies are posted, that the plans, the health insurance companies don't change the formularies mid year. Um, but the bottom line is, is pharmacy because we have no regulation on the pricing of pharmacy, uh, pharma- you know, pers- pharmaceutical drugs in America. And in fact, the Medicare program is prohibited from doing any kind of price controls. And so is Medicaid. It's a big problem. And we really need to address that like Canada did. (laughs) Well, one of the things that's interesting to me is really why the Republican pitch on this didn't go a different way, which it could have done within a sort of market, more pro-market view than the the Democrats would traditionally have. And it would simply be to support more transparency on the cost of medical services. There's such a huge thicket of 
charges when you talk to anybody who's had treatment of whether they can understand exactly what they were charged for. And one of the reasons I quite like the French system, Elizabeth, is when you get a bill, whether you're insured or not, you can actually see what it was itemised that was being charged. We kept talking about a la carte insurance, but in fact, we do seem to get a bit of a muddled set menu. So I wondered if that might be a way that this bill could develop and perhaps save itself a little bit in your eyes. It, you know, it would be great if there was more increased consumer transparency, but in fact, what they're proposing is less consumer transparency. Right Are you now, sure of that already? I'm sure of that already, and I'll, let you, and I'll tell you why. Um, because on the marketplace, you actually can do apples-to-apples apples comparison across like three plans at a time or four plans at a time. So kind of like, you, you know, I don't know if you're trying to rent or buy a car, you can line them up and look at them across. If you're on the web, you can look and compare them. That's what the marketplaces do. What they're trying to do is say, oh, we're going to give tax credits to plans that are off the marketplace where you will no longer be able to do an apples-to-apples comparison. And so people will be buying plans with no drug coverage unwittingly or hospital-only hospital policies. That's a big problem. So it does the complete – it further opaques the system. I'm going to squeeze one more caller in here. We have Paul from Huntington, New York. Paul, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hello there. How are you doing? Pretty good. What's, what's been your experience? Okay, here's, here's the thing. It's a very uneven playing field. What's going on is that some areas are being funded very well and others are not. What I'm seeing, I, I'm a pain management physician. I, I love talking about opioids and all that, but I also work with a lot of primary cares. We need to put the doctors back in charge with the patients and hold the doctors accountable. I've seen the good and the bad. I've seen, uh, you know, patients, I mean, sorry, I've seen physicians who prescribe whatever is in their closet because the pharmaceutical company gave them samples. And then I've seen physicians who do things so responsibly that it costs them $26 for every prior authorization. This was a study in the Journal of the American. Medical Association. Paul, I'm going to stop you before we get to the study. I'm going to I'm going to leave it at that comment quickly, Elizabeth. Physicians in charge. Um, You know, I I think that would. I I, I mean, I'm not sure what that would look like. Would that look like the French system? Would that look like the Swiss system or the English system? I'm not quite sure. I think physicians have a lot of power in our current system. Um, And I'm not. You know, I think we just need to keep pitching in together and try to make the system work better for everyone. Physicians, patients, hospitals, everyone. You've been listening to Indivisible. This is Public Radio's National Conversation, airing four nights a week for the first 100 days of the new administration. If you want to know where your congressperson is on Obamacare, you can check it out at wnyc.org slash congress. Tomorrow on Indivisible, join WNYC's Brian Lehrer and guests for a debate about what Trump's health care plan reveals about how Americans define freedom. And for those of us on the East Coast uh, who may be snowed in, you can pass the time by catching up on Indivisible through our podcast as well. I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElroy from The Economist. We will talk to you next week.